Welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know at this point, we release three different types of podcasts. Our SJI 10 Minute Lesson series aims to educate and inform listeners on a particular area of policy, giving a brief overview of somewhere in the range of 8 to 15 minutes and hitting on the key points that people need to know. Our seminar series, which provides opportunities to listen back to some of the most important presentations of past events. And our SJI interview series, where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those. This week, we're joined by Kira Gale, Policy Officer, and Aoife McNamara, Participation and Rights Education Coordinator with the Ombudsman for Children's Office to talk about direct division and life in lockdown, two reports that spoke to young people living in the direct provision system. As I'll be allowing the voices of the children to finish out the podcast, I will thank you in advance for listening to the podcast and I hope you found it useful. If you have any ideas for future podcasts, any subjects that you would like us to cover, feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe. So I'll start where I always start, which is if one or the other of you can explain what the Ombudsman for Children's Office actually does. Yeah, absolutely. So the Ombudsman for Children, or OCO for short, was opened in 2004. Um, So that was under the Ombudsman for Children Act 2002. So basically, because of the Act, that means we're an independent statutory body. That really means that we are not directly accountable to any one minister within the government or any one government department. So um, we're directly accountable to both houses of the Oireachtas, which is a really unique position for us to be in, to be able to hold people to account. So our Ombudsman for Children is uh, Dr. Niall Muldoon, and he was first appointed in 2015, and he has just been reappointed this year for a second term. So really, like, we have two main functions. So the first one would be to promote the rights of children, all children living in Ireland under the age of 18. And I think it's important that we say living in Ireland as well, because children don't have to be Irish. If you live here, you're protected by the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, and we're able to protect and promote your rights. So yeah, as I said, that first one really is around raising awareness of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, or the NCRC for short, And then we consult with children to highlight their concerns. And then we also monitor and advise on public policy um, and developments in legislation to ensure that the government is uh, producing legislation and policy that is in line with children's rights. And then the second big function that I think a lot of people would know us for is really that we deal with complaints made by or on behalf of children about the actions of uh, public services and that's really about their administrative actions and we look for something called maladministration so that's a massive function of the office as well. So you're busy? We are! (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot there and I suppose I, I am conscious even though today we are just talking about children living in the direct provision system it's just to remind people because we've listeners all over the world that as you said every single young person under the age of 18 living in Ireland has access to the ombudsman and I suppose that was the interesting thing was that until April 2017 the only children who weren't able to access the office were children living in direct provision is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2017, we had our remit clarified. I think here I'd probably be able to speak a little bit more about this, but um, we weren't able to take complaints for from children living in direct provision. And it was a long process. Uh, Kira, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I suppose under the Ombudsman for Children Act, uh, we can't look at complaints relating to kind of the international protection system. I suppose some government departments interpreted that to include direct provision. I suppose we, the OCO, always argued that direct provision was just where international protection applicants lived. It wasn't essentially part of the direct or kind of the international protection system. So it took until April 2017 kind of for agreement, I suppose, or clarification to be made on that point. And we were finally allowed to accept complaints then from residents of direct provision centres. I understand. So it was that a particular class of 
so somebody who's in this international international protection process was unable to progress a complaint what that was translated into was that these children because of where they're living can't progress a complaint yes. so even though they're in the process they should still be able to raise a complaint about a health issue or a, an education issue same as every other child as a result of that then just from the reading of doing that it became very aware that these are a particularly vulnerable set of young people. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as Kira said, so it's four years since since this was clarified this month, actually. So what we started to do four years ago was to go out um, into the centres to meet with parents and with children. And we did that really through holding rights awareness workshops with the children and then with complaints clinics as well. And it just became really, really obvious to us, not only in the complaints capacity, but that in the um, in children's just right to have a say on the matters that affect them, that they just were not being heard, that they had really limited opportunity to express their, their feelings. That's what led to that piece of work then, was it the direct division? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they're identified as... Um, kind of a, a key cohort of, of children um, who are seldom heard and who might find our office hard to reach within our strategic plan. So gotcha. something we really wanted to progress. Okay. So the direct division report then spoke to 73 teenagers between the ages of 12 and 17. And it's a, it's a lot longer than I, you know, you're younger than me. I was a teenager a lot longer ago, but that's such a difficult time in anybody's life. It's so formative. Everything's such a big deal. All the emotions are so huge. And then to experience that in these conditions must be very, very difficult. Because I, I saw that lack of privacy was a common theme that ran through uh, what, what the children were saying to you. So... I mean, I don't know whether you can kind of speak generally about the report or we can go down through it piece by piece. Yeah, it might be useful to go down through it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> really, I suppose the first thing that I that I want to say from the outset is that, um, look, I wish it wasn't me talking to you today. I wish yes. that it was one of the children yes. themselves. Yes. Yeah. Um, but we, we uh, as an office, really respect and protect children's rights to anonymity. So there can be a lot of fear within international protection applicants about speaking out against a system where their lives are dependent on this system. So we we don't want to make these children spokespeople for this consultation. So really, my job here and my job within the OCO is just to amplify the voices of children. So I'm not here to speak on behalf of them by any means, but I want to ensure that your listeners have a sense of what they have said. So... I'm probably going to quote them quite a bit if yeah. that's okay because I want to really be true to what they told myself and, and the team so like just from the outset I will never do justice to what they said so everybody should go and read the report um, and watch the film and look at their artwork because their words are powerful yeah. and I think that that's where you're going to get the most impact really but I suppose I can start off by telling you a bit about how we kind of went about it and, and kind of the way the, the yes. consultation progressed. Brilliant. thank you. So yeah, as you said, we had 73 um, young people, 12 to 17, um, from nine different centres. So we kind of looked at getting a geographical spread. Some of them were own door accommodations. Some of them were um, self-catering. Some of them were catered. And some of them included EROC. So that would be people under the um, refugee system so that EROCs are emergency orienta- emergency reception orientation centres. Okay. So um, we had some children who already had refugee status then within this cohort too. So really what we did at the start was to meet with the children and the parents in advance, talk through to ensure that they understood the consultation, that there was full informed and voluntary consent um, and we kind of spilled in trust and rapport because, you know, we are still, you know, could be seen as an arm of the state, even despite of our, our independence. So really building those relationships is a massive part of this as well. And then we can cons- we carried out the consultation through focus groups and interviews. And that was really about creating an open dialogue that was using like participative methodologies to kind of get the best um, out of the children and, and the time that we had with them as well because it's it's limited. So really what we did at the start was begin talking about their rights under the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. 
So yeah, through those facilitated conversations, we kind of discussed what rights do the children feel that they have in Ireland and what they felt they didn't have in Ireland. So I think those conversations were actually really important for us in setting the scene because some of the children chose to speak about their journeys to Ireland and really how their protection rights were affected in their countries of origin. So often their journeys to Ireland were really difficult and often really traumatic. And I suppose the thing that the children really wanted us to know was that um, there was no pull factor to Ireland. Um, They had come here for protection, you know, and I think... um, there's was one quote that I might share with you here, if you don't mind. So one, one child said, um, I come from a place where there's war. In my school, officers used to come for the boys and put them in a truck and give them a gun and a uniform. They were mostly 15 to 18. I was 13. If I was still there, I would have been taken. I think that's the, that's the thing that really came across, I think, was that none of these families wanted to leave their countries same way that I, w- I don't want to leave my home I don't want to uproot my children I don't want to have to have a travel half across halfway across the world because there was one quote really stood out to me even though these people are making it miserable sometimes but I'm so grateful we are in a safe place it's the most important thing imagine being scared to go to school imagine being scared of being bombed or shot or kidnapped so I am more than grateful that I am here so when we worry about our children going to school, we worry about things like bullying. We worry about will they be able to keep up with, with the homework? Will we worry about them vaping behind the bike sheds or, you know, setting fire to wheelie bins with a few cans in the park? We don't worry about our children being shot or kidnapped or bombed while they're in school. We've forgotten where these children have come from. Mm-hmm. I think it's really easy as well with a lot of... The, the rhetoric that there's been in the public um, about direct provision, both about either dismantling the system or about the system, you know, the system not being fit for purpose or the fact that maybe people think that they shouldn't be here or there shouldn't be centres in their area, that we've just forgotten that these are our children who came to Ireland for safety. And the gratitude from these children is is kind of, it's it's actually shameful um, because I kind of feel like they don't need to feel grateful. It is their international right to be here. It is in law. It's, you know, we're not here to, to deny them that. And we, we have this obligation as an Irish state. I think whenever we're discussing um, direct provision as well, we look at what's happening within the system. And so it's really easy to forget what happened before the system too, you know, before they came here. But at the same time, whilst they had their protection rights maybe um, fulfilled in Ireland mm-hmm. um, and, you know, that right to safety uh, and, you know, protection from war and, uh, and, and exploitation, living in direct provision still has a profound impact on the realisation of children's rights. So as, as you've correctly pointed out, um, you know, rights to privacy, play and rest, food, access to information, were some of the things that just kept coming to up time and time and time again. And I think the privacy one is something if, that if you haven't been in a direct provision centre, it's really hard to imagine what it looks like, what it means. So like one of the children said, we don't have privacy, like everything, our whole life is exposed. It just makes you wonder why they're doing this to us. We're not animals. And, it, it, you know, that really speaks to me about this is close borders, this is families to rooms. Not all of the centres are like that and some are better than others and that's a massive problem within the system is that some centres are better than others. But this fact that a child would feel that their entire life is exposed by this, the nature of where they live, is it's really sad. And then that they're trying to navigate this new country and these new systems and they often pointed to the fact that they didn't have enough information about getting around the system. So one of the children said, I don't think that we're given enough information because we're looked at as if we don't understand. So when language barriers come in and when race comes in, that there is a dehumanizing effect sometimes where we don't be as transparent um, and clear with people about what's going to happen in their new lives in this country. That was a big thing for those kids that they did feel safe, but mm-hmm. at the same time, the system of direct provision was ha- was having an impact. And then participation rights was the second thing. Is that correct? 
Yeah, we did. We discussed a lot about um, participation rights. Really, um, participation rights are um, essentially under Article 12 of uh, the UNCRC. Children have a right to say, to have a say on matters that affect them and for adults to give them due weight and consideration. So it's not just about showing up and listening to your child. It's really about um, ensuring that they have the audience to listen and the influence to um, affect some change as well. Um, and I suppose that's kind of why the OCO does this kind of consultative work. We are not policy makers, we are not decision makers, but we put together their voices and we make sure that the right people hear what they have to say. Um, so this was a really unique opportunity for us to actually uphold children's participation rights through this process as well. And would that also include their right to participate in their own communities and in their own societies? Does that also cover that? Uh, again, it does. I, was, I, I was struck by for teenagers that the bus takes us to school and brings us back. We can't stay late at school. We can't do anything in town. So you can't hang around. That's what teenagers do. They hang around. You can't hang around after school. We always get home at 20 past four every day. So even just yeah. something as simple as hanging around can't be done yeah so the centers themselves some of them not all again um some can be really 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 isolated and there would be buses to and from the like town um to bring uh, residents in and out to either go to school or to do their shopping and bits and pieces like that but those buses are infrequent and um you know don't have that flexibility of being able to stay and do things after school um, so there's definitely massive, massive, massive isolation from um, the community. Um, and I suppose where children told us that they felt the most included was in their centres. So they felt this real sense of camaraderie, you know, really supported each other. They formed really close bonds. And like some centres had activities for for children and a space to socialise but like sometimes the children were telling us oh this is the first time we've ever been in this room and it would be the room we we're doing the consultation in, and they were like we have no place to hang out we've never been in this room wouldn't it be class if there was a tv and a sofa and we we're just sitting in a you know a blank unused room so you know some centres do have teenage rooms and they loved really appreciated that space but this really does affect children's right to rest and play. And we think about play as being something that's maybe done by smaller children, but it's not. It's that inclusion of in sport and, you know, being able to hang out and, and have that recreation space. Um, so I think that, that when it, when they had that, that's when they felt the most included. Okay. Another place that they felt kind of included was if their school made really particular efforts school could be a, a place for inclusion and an exclusion was something that we find yeah. frequently yeah. we heard you know where children were participating in sport and drama and music that was really cited as something that was a source of inclusion within their center and also within their communities and their schools but as you said the transport issue is massive so one child explained to us that they they sing they um, they taught us how to play Gaelic. I got a shirt from them. They gave us boots as well. It was good because we met people from other places. So because of this isolation, frequently groups and organisations go to the centre and they, they're solely held there as opposed to incorporating these children into the local community and bringing them along. And that kind of transport and bus issue really is a barrier to that. And then whenever they've made friends, maybe um, at a sports event, then the children would get really afraid to maybe ask for a lift or because they didn't want to be picked up from a direct provision centre. So whilst things on the face of it, whenever we started talking about them, appeared to be this really inclusive space, there were barriers to the air, their inclusion all along the way. And we quickly kind of realised, actually, you're talking about exclusion here. That was one of the kind of main takeaways for me, that even whenever these children were searching for a positive that as an adult and someone who wasn't living in their circumstance, I could really clearly see that actually what they were describing was something really horrendous and, and exclusionary. So I think that was that was a big shock for me. And one line that could have did really crop out to me was they're just anxious. So they were anxious just to be normal. I mean, have, imagine having that as your goal. Yeah, yeah, I know it's so basic and like. 
they are desperate to be treated with dignity and respect. And I think that what a low bar is that, you know, um, you know, they, they frequently felt isolated from, from the community as well, because, you know, we have children reporting that they're just walking down the street and a grown adult has come up and said, go home to your own country. So, you know, those, that level of, of racism um, experienced by them really isolated them further from their community and from wider society. And I think that the biggest kind of place where that racism really had a massive impact on their self-esteem and their self-worth was in their school. And that's because like school is, is where they come in contact with their peers and it's where they come in contact with their community and where they get a benchmark really for attitudes of other, of other Irish society. So whenever they were had racist thoughts directed towards them in school, that had a much more significant impact than you know a casual racist stay on the street. So the other thing is really that that racism kind of took two forms. I'd say that um, sometimes it was really, really, really overt, and sometimes it was covert racism. So I've got two quotes here just to kind of show you what I mean by that. So um, the first one is really this overt racism so um the child says racism is a big problem people say oh you're a muslim so you're a terrorist as well do you have a bomb just because we're muslim doesn't mean we're terrorists or anything there are loads there's loads of racism in this society so clearly that's somebody being overtly sectarian and you know using these old stereotypical tropes to this child but then there's that other kind of nuanced, really sinister, insidious kind of racism that people maybe don't notice every day. So this child explains there is a group of guys in school who come up to me and ask for the N-word pass because the N-word seems cool. It's in rap videos. But it doesn't seem right for a white person to be using that word. So I just say no. Sometimes even your friends ask. It makes me feel disappointed. It's not necessary. I'm in school to learn. If someone asks me that, it makes me feel uncomfortable. So it's coming kind of at all angles for them, you know? One thing that struck out to me was that children will experience lengthy periods in direct provision differently to the adults. Could you speak to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. It's one thing that we say in the office is really that a child's life is incredibly short and that they do experience time differently. Children have slightly more interaction with their um, local community as well whenever they're living in direct provision because they are generally going into school and getting the buses and different sorts of things. So they um, might see things that their parents don't. Frequently, the adults have a really quite isolated life unless they are able to secure work, which some of them are not able to do. So I think that definitely the children can feel things and experience things much more acutely just because of their exposure um, and the fact that, you know, they're, they're going into school and they're playing sports in the community and those sorts of things. But I think that one of the things that the children, maybe adults underestimate what children experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really clear that some uh, Irish children are learning some pretty negative and harmful stereotypes about asylum seekers from their parents. You know, children express to us that um, others would come up to them and be like, you have no right to be here, you know, you're sponging off our system and things like that. So one child really explained this very well. She said, um, a friend said to me, Irish people are paying for everything for you. And that made me feel uncomfortable. I'm not used to people giving me everything. I felt confused and I didn't want anyone to see me living here. I felt sad because it's not my choice to be here. If I could get papers and if I didn't have troubles in my own country, I would not be here. I felt scared because she knows where I live. So, And as you said, uh, you know, the average 13 year old isn't reading the programme for government and isn't watching the budget every October. So isn't aware of the direct provision system isn't aware of what funds the direct provision system isn't aware that there's state ones that there's private operators so all of that information is coming from the adults in their life yeah also i suppose not aware of the obligations that the irish state has yes i mean we've sought the irish state has signed up to these international agreements people are entitled to come here and seek protection and it's 
they're not here for any reason that they're not entitled to be here for. Yeah, yeah. And, and as, as that child said, given the choice, they would go back to their lives without war, without fear of being kidnapped, without fear of, of, of their school being bombed. I mean, that's kind of what you want. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well that that kind of leads to children uh, not wanting to tell people where they live. So um, people might drive by a centre and they'll just say accommodation centre. It doesn't say like direct provision, you know, this big sign hanging above people's heads. So like while the children would then feel like literally I can read this. I feel ashamed to tell my friends I am an asylum seeker because of the negative connotations of that word, you know, that they felt that stigma and shame that Irish society is putting on them. And then one other child says here, some children just won't talk to me because they know where I live. They say they won't talk to me, they won't talk to people who live in a dirty place. So I just keep quiet. And that, you know, families might drive past a direct provision centre that maybe was an old Magdalene laundry or an old asylum or an old hotel. And it just says accommodation centre and, and, and people don't know what that is, but they know that those people come from that place and they don't want to have anything to do with it. So there's this real problem in our society about knowing and understanding what these children are going through and what they have been through. And I think it is a lot around um, what parents are saying to children, but also what's happening in schools, because children are not being educated about the direct provision system in school. And frequently teachers were do not know what is happening in direct provision centre either. So the most frequently cited thing that children wanted to see change in was things in their schooling so they kept asking you know can you guys go in and give rights training to our teachers and you know we want everyone to know what everyone's rights are because then they can't tell me to not be here and that just came up time and time again that once they had talked to us about their human rights they were like oh my god everyone needs to know you know Um, and I think that the, the, the issue with teachers as well was that they don't have not given that intercultural training um, and that training on what's actually happening in the centres to be able to nip in the bud any racism and any bullying that was happening on the basis of where these children live or where they're perceived to live as well. Kira, do you want to say just a little bit about our recommendations on that? Yeah, so I suppose... Um... Education-wise, I suppose, and in schools in general, um, I suppose it kind of crosses over from education and kind of the inclusion part. But um, in the report, we did recommend that teachers should be provided, I suppose teachers and just professionals, any professionals really, um, that could end up dealing with with children living in direct provision would be provided with um, interculturalism awareness training, that really this should be embedded in, say, the likes of teacher training courses um, and even then refresher training on it. But then, I suppose, to extend on that, then the professionals who have regular contact as children in direct provision centres, again, I suppose, like teachers, that they could also receive training on things like, say, recognizing trauma things like that because of what these children have gone through in the past the teachers might be able to recognize children who might need extra help and support and would then be able to hopefully direct them towards the services that they might need just with the white paper now and kind of I suppose moving forward there's just a few things that we think kind of could be clarified I suppose a little Mm -hmm. bit more I mean like I said already we we welcome kind of this move to kind of the own door accommodation in urban areas. We really welcome kind of the focus on children, families, kind of the human rights based approach. But there's just a few things that kind of were sometimes rec- maybe mentioned in the day report, but we're not quite sure how they followed through to the white paper. And um, there's things like, say, there's vulnerability assessments. Oh, so yes. under under EU law, Ireland is supposed to be carrying out vulnerability assessments. Now, they have kind of started recently, you know, for new kind of applicants coming into the international protection process. And in the white paper, they are referred to and they will be carried out in phase one, which is kind of when people are staying kind of in a reception centre for kind of three to four months when they arrive first. Um, and it can kind of be carried out at any, they're to be carried out within 30 days, but if vulnerabilities come out at a later stage within that period, they can be carried out again. 
But once it gets to phase two and people and families are moved, I suppose, into the urban areas around the country, there's no reference to vulnerability assessments being carried out then. And I suppose just from the point of view, I suppose for children who've come to Ireland may have, it's a lot of change, I suppose, Mm -hmm. at one time. They've travelled to Ireland, they've come here, they've settled into the reception centre, they've moved somewhere else. Vulnerabilities could come out at a later stage. We would like it that the the vulnerability assessments aren't just tied kind of to phase one, I suppose, of the, the, the new system. English language, I suppose, then is just another thing. Like again, in the first phase, both adults and children will get English language supports. When they move on to phase two, extra language supports will be provided for adults, but there's no reference to extra language supports being provided to children. Now I know obviously they'll be in school and they'll be learning there, but for somebody who's moved to Ireland who might not have had a word of English before they got here, a few months of kind of intense language in phase one probably won't be enough for them to then just be able to settle into an English speaking school and have sufficient English to kind of just start learning there. Mm. So I do think we do think kind of that um, maybe extra language supports should also be considered for children. There were like English language te- support teachers mm. previously. Now in the recession, that all cu- got cut back. But, you know, the, the provision of something like that really would be of benefit to children in phase two. Just some more Kira saying there about trauma. So obviously we know the children have traumatic experiences and that's why they come here and things like that. But the process of living in direct provision can be a traumatic event in and of itself. Um, And so I think aside from the teacher um, training and things like that, one of the recommendations was that the children were really frustrated by how slow um, it took to process their claims. And even whenever their claims were processed, that how slow it was for them to transition out of direct provision because they couldn't get any housing. So they really wanted the asylum system to speed up. So one of the children says here, I think this is really clear. um, I love Ireland and everything, but the system is so slow. The system is changing people. If it was a bit quicker, it would have helped so many people. I don't think that people realise we are human. And that's it. It's the it's the length of time. It's yeah. the compounding effect of having no privacy, having nowhere to play, not being included in your community, suffering sectarianism, racism, all of that wearing down of children's resilience leads to trauma in children because of where we need them live and the system in which we have put them in. So I mean, that kind of adverse childhood experiences that impacts you for the rest of your life across every single aspect of your life is probably worthy of another podcast but as you said it was the same piece that you did in in children living in family hubs regardless of what happened before they entered into these environments the by virtue of being in that environment damage was being done so that there there, there must be a, a better way of of looking after the most vulnerable in our society so i suppose there's certain issues i suppose that probably need to be addressed though before the changes that are going to come around kind of through the white paper um like standards national standards for direct provision centers they were published in 2019 they were due to become legally enforceable in January this year but there's still there's negotiations going on or kind of discussions going on between Department of Children Equality Disability Integration Youth and Department of Health and HICWA about that. And they're, they're looking to see if legislation needs to be changed to do it. So, you know, we're kind of four months into the year and that they were supposed to start and they still haven't started. And I suppose it's unclear as to when those national standards will start being enforced, when the kind of the independent body will be appointed to actually kind of carry out the, the inspections. And then I suppose linked to that is a concern that if some accommodation centres are found not to be compliant with the standards and if they're closed, what happens to the residents of those centres? I mean, 
the government needs to make sure that there are places, that there's suitable places for families to move to. Like, you don't want to see a situation where a family has to leave a direct, a direct provision centre because it's closing, but is then moved into kind of nearly more unsuitable accommodation oh, by, say, being moved into a hotel or something like that. So as they're going to have to make sure that there's places for these families. The white paper, it's, there's a timeline, I suppose, included in the white paper. And it's kind of it's 2023 when they kind of start mentioning moving families. Mm-hmm. And the white paper then kind of, you know, they're planning the direct provision is going to end then kind of by the end of 2024. So I suppose assuming that everything goes to plan yeah. you're still there's still families going to be living in direct provision centers for the next two to three years the direct the current direct provision centers can't be ignored the children that are living there can't be kind of left in the situation that they're still in like changes still need to be made to those centers playgrounds need to be put into the ones that need playgrounds after school clubs still need to be put in it can't they can't be just left in limbo because the system is ending because the, the, those children will still be there. They'll, and for like for two, two years in the life of a child, like you said, it's it's a long time. You're yeah. talking about somebody moving from primary school to secondary school. You're talking about some children in two, two and a half years won't be children anymore mm-hmm. even, you know, so it, it is a long time in their lives. And I would imagine there are children who have been born into direct provision. And I suppose I'm, I'm so conscious of that piece about as you said, these are 12 to 17 year olds and thankfully your office kindly sent me on a clip that I want to add on to the end of this episode, which is the children's voices themselves, which really echoes even what you had said at the beginning. You would love to have a session with the children. So I just think it's so important to have their voices heard. And that's it. Like they are the next generation of Gardaí, of local councillors, of baristas, of barbers, of teachers, of parents, they won't and be they're full of ambition. Well, <laughs> they're they not won't be eleven forever. If like Whitney says, if if children are the future, we need to look after them better. The other piece that you did was you went back and spoke to children who were living in direct provision and asked them how they were coping with the COVID pandemic. I think that the three things that really jumped out to me were the communal living aspect of it their interruption in education and schooling, and then the access that they had to information and supplies. Yeah, exactly. It was exactly the same issues, really, that were outlined in the direct division consultation, but intensified. So during the, the lockdown, their experience of social exclusion, physical isolation, lack of facilities, lack of space, lack of privacy, just was all compounded, really, by, by the lockdown. So like the boredom, the loneliness, the frustration that we all felt out, out in the community was really magnified for the children living in the direct provision, especially by the fact that they had to stay indoors, often in one small room with their entire family for months. And I don't think any of us can imagine the intensity of that, even having gone through the lockdown ourselves. So I, really as well, the, the, the right that was most affected um, by lockdown was um, the right to education with all of the children we spoke to expressing difficulty with keeping up with school due to the lack of support services, uh, digital poverty and language barriers. You know, in school, things can be explained a little clearer. You know, you can communicate a little bit easier. But, you know, this remote learning that was brought in, that that was not possible for children in direct provision. Um, you know, frequently they didn't have laptops. And I know there's amazing work being done by Maasai and, and, and uh, other organisations to provide laptops for children. But um, the Wi-Fi in these areas can be woeful and really unreliable and they have no control over that at all. So but even um, with the best will in the world, I mean, as a parent who can't remember how to multiply fractions, there's challenges in homeschooling. Absolutely. And yeah, one of the children would say, you know, it'd be so much easier if my mom spoke English. Mm-hmm. But again, it's putting that back on them, you know, yeah. that this, that's, they feel so much responsibility and they want to do so well and they don't want to fall behind like every child. Um, but, but it's the government's responsibility to make sure these children don't fall behind. That, it, this responsibility lies with the state. And like, I think one of the really sad takeaways for me as well was kind of that 
the lockdown kind of challenged some of the really close bonds that the residents had amongst themselves and other children. Because when outbreaks occurred in the centre, they would be removed and taken maybe to Dublin and put into isolation. And then whenever they would return, like there would be fear, then are we all going to get sick? And you'd be looking to say, oh, that one's going out to work, they're going to bring it back. And, you know, it really just... It just led to stigmatization of these children and it really magnified the, the marginalization of these already children already living on the fringes of Irish society. And, you know, we were talking about it in the news being like there's outbreaks in direct provision and mm-hmm. almost as though people in direct provision were to blame for these outbreaks when in actual fact, you know, we were all getting outbreaks, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. As, 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 that, as that child said, that dirty place. Exactly. You know, these things didn't help. And I think the same thing happened with the traveller community as well. You know, that there was a perception that these communities were somehow to blame for this when, as we can see, everybody is. But one of the other like really stark findings, I think, was that sadly lockdown did not change these children's lives too much because in a really, very real sense, they already had massive restrictions on their lives. So one of the children wrote me a letter and said, um, I want people in Ireland to know that the way they feel about not having any freedom and not getting to visit their friends and family in this pandemic is the way I felt living in direct provision for five years. So this is this is real life there. Life is restricted. This is their lived experience um, that, that somebody else is watching, that somebody is controlling, that there are rules that you have to obey. There are places you can go and can't go. There are things you can do and can't do. Um, and they are removed from, you know, their family who might be stuck in a really perilous position somewhere else. Um, and they are isolated from everything that they knew. And yeah, I think that it's really put into sharp focus how ineffective the system is and how difficult communal and congregate living is. I suppose just looking forward, I suppose, with the white paper, all right, Mm -hmm. I suppose one of the things that will, I suppose, the aim is to move away, I suppose, from those kind of congregated settings and there'll be on-door accommodation in urban areas, uh, access to transport. So I suppose if all those things do kind of come to plan at least it will kind of tackle some of those issues but again we're looking at a number of years down the line and it's not going to address kind of the immediate issues for the families that are living in the centres right now and will be for the foreseeable future. And that's the difficulty as well is that even when families do achieve status and can live here and can move out there's nowhere to go because there's a housing crisis Um, and I suppose it was something that I had I can't think what community it was, but it was a community that was well researched and constantly being asked for their opinions and nothing changed. So I wonder, are these children almost, you know, you'd hate for them to get, I suppose, cynical in the sense of, well, look, I've been consulted. I've told you my story. Yeah, that's the challenge. That's always the challenge with this, um, with this nature of work um what i would say is that we do not do this out of any tokenism Mm. we actively listen to what the children have said and we will put this to people in power and we did meet with the government ministers and we you know niall does constantly ensure that this is kept front and center um and i think the the temptation um with the white paper, with the day report, those sort of really massive developments mm-hmm. in policy is to say that this is solved. Um, yes. And so that's where where, our, where Kira's job comes in, <laughs> to, <laughs> to keep the pressure on, you know. And as well, I suppose another one of our roles as an office is we report into different United Nations kind of um, bodies. So um, at the moment, the kind of the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child, their kind of reporting process is going on in Ireland, is kind of being examined. So like last year, last July, we submitted um, kind of our first report into the committee. Um, and like we had a section in it on 
children living in direct provision, the problems that they're facing, our concerns. And we used kind of the findings from the direct division report, you know, the experiences of the young people. We use those in the report. Now, the Irish government are due to submit their report in the autumn this year. And then we will then be submitting another report, um, kind of a more up-to-date report next spring. But again, like children in direct provision is going to be, you know, something that we will be looking at. So it kind of will feed into that. So in a way, the work that was done in the direct division report is also in a way part of it or kind of I suppose this, the findings of it will be going to the United Nations and they have asked the government, you know, to provide information on kind of how they are dealing with the issue of direct provision. And um, we've also put in a submission to the United Nations Human Rights Council recently, and that has to be a very short submission. Is a very short word count on that, but out of the short word count, we still put in a lot about direct provision. <laughs> so um, just to kind of, you know, it, it is an issue that we do really want, you know, to highlight and to kind of, so what, like, while we're focusing, I suppose, on the Irish, the government and everything to make sure the change happens here, we're also kind of using the influence that we have then kind of in trying to get the international bodies to also in a way kind of put pressure on the government kind of to get at it from that side. And the other thing as well is that we have, um, as you know, obviously our complaints function. So um, we have an investigation report into uh, child protection and welfare within direct provision, which will be published uh, soon. Um, And what's interesting about that investigation is that it's an own volition investigation. And essentially that means that we decided that we were going to investigate these issues within the direct provision system. Um, frequently we find with um, international protection applicants and people living within direct provision accommodation that they are reluctant to complain. So we, under our functions, were able to take this as an own volition, meaning we did not need to have one single complaint. We just knew about the issues because we're on the ground and this is what we've decided to do. So keep keep your eyes peeled for that investigation report in the next few weeks. You know, the day report, the white paper, job done, problem solved. We can all move on to the next thing. And, and that isn't the case. So it is about that continuing pressure to say, well, you know, did you reach your target? Did you reach your goal? These are real people. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thrilled I got that clip because I, I'll be breaking with tradition and we will be going would be playing that at the end but it's so important to listen to those children's voices and you know there's hope there do you know what I mean that they're like young people everywhere you know they can't wait to get going absolutely um and like that was really important part of the process for us was to once we did these consultations and we did the little focus groups we then managed to get on some of the children together so we did two different like creative away days um, and we got the children who all participated, we got them together and they worked together on creating um, artwork um, to express their opinions. And then they also um, did interviews using their own voice, but disguised and uh, not showing their faces, but they did interviews to camera to create a beautiful film, really, to express themselves in their own words about how they felt. And so that was like really brilliant for anybody who's ever worked with children living in direct provision it is really 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 hard to get them out of their center and um just do something away from there so this is a really big deal for us that we like got to go away and we took them out for a day and we had this like brilliant creative away days and lots of ideas and the children formed these like really beautiful friendships as well like I was chatting to one of them recently and they had visited each other in a different centres. And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die with the cuteness. So, you know, these are real children who are just out there to make friends and just, you know, have a nice time. And I have, I have one last little letter that I hope you might read. But at the end of the consultations, we kind of asked them, like, right, well, we've talked about rights, we've talked about inclusion, exclusion, but like, what is the last thing that you want Ireland to know? So we... We asked them at the end of the day then to write a, a letter to Ireland. So all of the letters started off, Dear Ireland. So this one says, Dear Ireland, you're the most wonderful place and we are so grateful to be with you. We love you and your people, but some don't seem to like us back. I want you to help them understand us and how we feel when they treat us badly. 
So please, Mother Ireland, convince your children that we could be siblings. One last thing I want to do is a big plug. So <laughs> obviously at the start of this, I said, like, I will not be able to do the words of these children any, any justice. So I really recommend that people go and watch the film, read the report, look at the artwork. And you can find that at oco.ie forward slash direct division. And we have a whole dedicated web pages for that. And we will um, be coming out with an extended film based on um, the testimonies and interviews with these children as well. So watch the space for that. Thank you very much. Eva, thank you. Kira, thank you. That was very uplifting and very depressing in equal measure. In school, I have no friends because they just discriminate. They say, oh, black is bad, or you live in direct provision. You have no right to the society. You're just supposed to be in a cage. You should be fed like food that should be given to animals. I'd like to change the housing and the system for like people not to stay as long because I don't want a lot of people to go through the pain I've been in and my mom is just painful. Call you like they'll call you terrorists or are you Muslim also you're terrorists as well or do you have a bomb or this this this. There's lots of racism in this society as well. This actually is. It's horrible. It's like prison. It's just, they just keep us there as a, in a cage. They don't allow us to f go like what we want to do. They don't want us to do what we want to do or what we feel like doing. It's just terrible. Cause like we kids in the centers, we can't get like our own space. 2016, they promised us a youth, like a teenage room. Since then we didn't get one. The fact that people live in such small rooms is, is ridiculous. Like, I feel as if because of where I'm from, it's, I get less opportunities than most people. We are the only one experiencing this. The government, they, they, know, they know what it is, but they're not feeling it the way we're feeling it. I would like to tell them that words hurt words can kill and they should watch what they say about people. I came from Syria. I came from the worst conditions and I'm so more than grateful that I'm here. I thank God every single day that I'm here. I know we can we definitely can't change people. We can't change their opinion against us. That's fine with me but just don't show your hate on me. <laughs>